truth continues. It's just that it's now in a completely different form. The style has moved from a history to apocalyptic language with much figurative language that forecasts future events. Some of the events forecasted in uh, chapter 7 through 12 are likely already fulfilled. Many of them signify things to come, such as the return of our Lord. But I would also say the context of chapter 7 is a little different. Let's say that you are into a novel and that you are, you sat down in your favorite chair and you start to read away and a, a really interesting story ensues and all of a sudden you're getting a little tired but you want to keep going and the next chapter you read is all of a sudden a shift in style but also in timing. It's a, you know how some stories that you read or movies that you see, all of a sudden there's a flashback to an earlier time period. This is what chapter 7 is. You see, chapter 5, we enter into the handwriting on the wall, as you remember, and it was a king was called Belshazzar. Chapter 7 is actually historically placed before chapter 5. Its placement in chapter 7 is probably to keep the consistency intact between narrative and prophecy. But the timing of chapter 7 actually precedes chapter 5. The prophecy section we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks contains essentially four long visions over a period of about 22 years. Now, one of the, one of the things that you will note as I take us through this study is that I don't have a definitive um, interpretation on every piece of imagery. You will talk to people that, that will say to you, this is exactly what this horned wing on this particular creature signifies. I know it, it's obvious. That's not my approach per se. I will certainly give some uh, interpretation as to what this likely is or could mean or has meant to many. But my great hope is not so much arming you to read your newspaper more effectively so that you may get down all the signs of the times for future events. My great hope is the same as the first part, that your relationship with Christ would be deepened. That your love for God that your worship of him, that your focus of him would be stronger and stronger every day. I don't like to stack people to the teeth with knowledge, especially speculative knowledge. My hope is that I would point you to the only thing that matters in life, God himself. Nonetheless, I'm thoroughly excited about what we're going to be looking at. And today, as we look at the first 14 verses of Daniel 7, we're going to be learning together some prophecy principles for everyday life. How can some of the principles of the first 14 verses of the book of Daniel apply to our Monday morning and to our Thursday afternoon? Let me first of all read verse 1 of Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind. 
As he was lying on his bed, he wrote down the substance of the dream. Uh, the, the first principle I want to point out this morning of a prophecy principle for everyday life is simply this, number one on your outline, and that's this, to pay attention to God. Daniel had a, was a prophet of God and had a unique relationship in our biblical history that God spoke directly to him in such a way that the things revealed to him are authoritative to us here in Central Florida in 2014. Our relationship with God is different than that. Even though we, it's the same God we relate to and we have access through Jesus Christ, you and I aren't writing scripture when we hear from God. But what I, I do want to say is that we have the same type of responsibility to be men and women that are sensitive and obedient to God, that are paying attention to what he says to us. And, and note, it, it was so powerful and profound that he wrote it down. Do you ever hear something and you're like, I've got to write this down or I'm going to forget. As, as God speaks to us, we need to do whatever it takes to ensure remembrance. Now, sometimes we just act like we're listening to God and we're really not. Yesterday, or the day before yesterday, I was on a college uh, road trip, so to speak, with my second-born son, and we were flying into Dallas, and I, it was on an airline I'd never been on before, and oftentimes when someone travels with a pet, you, put, you have a little travel case for a pet, and the, they stow the pet. Well, in this particular airline, I was sitting next to a lady that had her cat uh, with her, and she told me, yeah, me and Kitty are here, and we're heading to Dallas, and we're moving to Dallas, and I'm like, oh, is that your imaginary friend or what? And it was, uh, her, she had a, a cat on the ground, and she was talking to the cat. Matter of fact, this lady was a cat talker. And uh, some of you are going, you're about, you're about to enter into a zone with me, preacher. You don't want to go. I might be preaching to a group of cat talkers. That, that's fine. But this lady was convinced. Now, the cat's name apparently was Mama. Mama? Are you okay there? We had a we've had a really stressful trip, hadn't we, Mama? This lady was convinced that the cat was listening to her. And they had a real life thing going on especially when she said, Mama, want some kisses? Now, that's when I was like. <laughs> but it was interesting. The cat, she acted like the cat was saying something to her, and she pretended there was a little game. Sometimes we play a little game with God, where we kind of straighten up and act spiritual for a moment and act like we're paying attention to him. But the truth is, we're going on with life doing our thing. When the living God speaks to us from his word, we need to pay attention to him. Now, in verses 2 and 3, we get another prophecy principle, and that's number 2 on your outline, and it's simply this, to look to Him, that's look to God, during trouble. I know that's oversimplified, but we have this tendency when trouble comes, sometimes we look to us, or we look to stuff, or things, or something else to be our rock. But Daniel, as, he, as he's listening to God, and trouble is explained, he becomes more Godward, more focused. Look what's going on in verse 2. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. In other words, the prophecy that is being foretold to him about some future event involves trouble. The Great Sea was likely a reference to the Mediterranean Sea, 
and the four winds, uh, they likely signified trouble, that there was uncertainty. And this is the way that the world has been. It's always been unsettled. The, the world has always been at war. And he is prophesying something and that is to come, and he's in, in doing so, he is using figurative language, and he's about to describe different creatures or beasts. Now, it is not unlike biblical record to describe nations and kings by animals. Matter of fact, we do that when you see a very distinct, proud eagle sign. We know that it's symbolizing the United States. The same with London with a lion. Oftentimes, nations are referred to by an animal, and, and <clears throat> there are particular animals that he's about to see in his vision that symbolize difficult times headed for those nations, and the message is that they are to look to the Lord. When you have difficulty coming your way, let it come to the place in your life where your natural instinct is to turn to the Lord rather than turn to yourself. Now, in verse 4, let's specifically get into the visions. There's four different creatures, animals, he has seen. Let me first of all read verse 4. It says, The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle, and I watched until its wings were torn off, and it lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. One of the things I want to talk about from verses 4 through 7, a next prophecy principle for everyday life is simply number three on your outline, and that's this, that God is penning the history books. There's a statement in the study of history that says this, history is written by the winners. It's likely a true statement because it's difficult to get an unbiased view of history. It's usually seen through the eyes of the conquering nation, so to speak. But when it comes to time, when it comes to actual history, past, and that which is to come, our world is not on an unguided freefall. God himself has his hand on the mantle of the past and on the future. And as we note from these verses, and as we note from scriptural principles, God himself is writing history. It's a bumpy road because it involves men and women with free will that make awful decisions. And so there's darkness along God's sovereign path of history. But we might say history is ultimately written by the winner, God himself. And this particular, these particular visions in 4 through 7 involve the crazy looking creatures that are described. Matter of fact, Josh, I don't know if you have on that first uh, vision a picture of the creature described here. Now, many feel that the prophecy in Daniel 7 correlates with the prophecy in Daniel 2. Do you recall, if you were here, a large 90-foot statue that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream that Daniel interpreted for him? It had different metals on the statue. And the likely interpretation is that all four of those statues were, were going to be taken down in the future. Many feel like that was the manward look at the future of the nations. In other words, to man, 
the nations look strong and mighty and impressive. But to God, nations who turn away from him look like ferocious beasts and creatures in need of God. And, and so many feel, and to me that's the best interpretation, that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 have correlation. So the first image is likely representing Babylon itself. The, the impending destruction that would happen uh, is described in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, it, it says that the wing came off, and in verse 4 he received the heart of a man. That could likely be a prophecy of what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, and when he lost his sanity, you might remember at the end of chapter 4, and instead of being like a king, he behaved like an insane man. Now, in verse 5, it, there's a second vision. It says, and there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. The second beast you can see there on the screen that, that is an image. It was a ferocious bear with three ribs in his mouth. As I was talking to Stephen Wong about, about this passage, I laughed for days when he told me he thinks that the three ribs in the bear's mouth is a prophecy of barbecue. <laughs> he said, and Cliff, it has been fulfilled. The signs are everywhere. Look at Sonny's. Look at Oakwood. Look at Smoky Bones. I laughed for days when he told me that. I would love for that to be the interpretation, that, that God's prophesying a future barbecue but we'll leave that to Wagamont but it's likely a symbol of the of the second part of the statue that symbolized silver and that is the Medo-Persian empire that came in conquered Babylon and uh, the the ribs are historically thought to be referred to three other nations that the Medo-Persian empire conquered uh, Libya Babylon and Egypt. Now, in verse 6, we see the third vision. It says, After that I looked, and there was before me another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Likely, in correlation with Daniel chapter 2, this beast that you see there, that's an awful looking beast, isn't it? Uh, refer to the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great was a conquering ruler, and the four heads are often believed to represent the four generals that tore the Greek empire apart after the early departure and early death of Alexander the Great. That's a possibility, but there is uncertainty about that. Now, in verse 7, you have almost an unimaginable beast. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and had ten horns. This beast, as you can see the, the image on the screen in just a moment, the horns coming off there. Now this, in correlation with the Daniel 2, uh, many have felt this to represent the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, uh, history tells us, was, came to the end of its dominion in the middle of the 5th century A.D., or the, toward the end of the 5th century. And the ten horns, some say, are representing a future revived Roman Empire. 
Some say that Rome has all gone away. Some say modern-day Europe represents uh, visages of old Rome. But regardless, there is a thought in the future that there will be a, an, a, a revived Roman Empire before the return of Christ. And, and, and you know, to me there's no definitive way. There's so much symbolism here that it's not specifically spelled out. Some are too busy watching developments in Europe to give a, a really solid answer. Now, the European Union has a one monetary system that many say could correlate with uh, verse 8 we'll look at in a moment, the rise of the Antichrist. The only problem is there are currently 28 nations part of the European Union. There's not those 10 nations that could rise up of some kind of revived future Roman Empire. And so uh, when you turn on the, the TV on the Christian station and you hear a prophecy preacher telling you that the European Union could be a revived Roman Empire, that the Antichrist is going to come out of there and be ready because any day it could happen, I think sometimes that's a bit of sensationalism. I mean, you, you can really get some odd predictions. Okay, there's 28 nations. That means there's a 2, and that's an 8. 2 plus 8 is 10. That could be the 10 horns. And, and on and on the speculation goes, I tend to be an anti-hype in times studier. I want the truth to come to us rather than for us to go scammering and looking for truth and join the historical list of the thousands upon thousands of predictions that have already been wrong. I believe when the signs are fulfilled and it gets closer, it will be obvious and everyone knows and there's no need to write a book about what it might be and then be wrong and have to recant or get a TV show to get a lot of listeners and give people our predictions. But nonetheless, we do see in verses 4 through 7 a sovereign God in control of history. Now there's something unique about this fourth beast that if you do your counting, there's actually an, one other horn. Uh, in verse 8 it says this, While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up from among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. This little horn of verse 8, many feel, and I believe is a good interpretation, is likely a reference to a literal figure in history that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. Now, John, in the book of 1 John, describes Antichrist as people that don't receive Christ. If you don't follow Christ, then you're Antichrist. But there's a distinction between those who are Antichrists and a literal historical figure. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, as many Antichrists have come, there are antichrists, yet there appears to be the antichrist, a literal, depending on your view and interpretation of Daniel, a literal historical figure that Paul refers to in 2 Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness. Now, there are several other allusions in the book of Daniel to this person, the antichrist. And as we get going later in our study, I'll share with you some of the misfires on pinpointing the Antichrist, what he will look like and what he will not likely look like. 
But one thing to note that a prophecy principle for our everyday life that we need to know is number four on your outline is simply this, is that evil will not win. Well, there's about to be a dramatic scene shift in verse 9, and it is going to decry the impending doom of the little horn that spoke boastfully. By the way, it's important for us to remember the vitality of humility in our spiritual life. When we become boastful, arrogant, braggadocious, just like the horn did, the Antichrist at the end of verse 8, we begin to display character that is like the Antichrist. None of us wants anyone to look, at, to look at our lives and say, you know what you remind me of? What's that? You remind me of the Antichrist. Because it is boasting. But we need to be men and women marked by meekness and gentleness and humility. Because that spirit that is bragging and drawing attention to ourselves is very much like a beast of the end times. But the truth is, evil won't win. Sometimes there are movies out. A traditional movie or storyline goes that it looks like the bad guy's going to win, and then by the end of the movie, everything's resolved, and the bad guy doesn't get the girl, the bad guy doesn't beat Batman, the bad guy doesn't win. But there are storylines out in our very dark world where these credits roll, and guess what happened? Evil won. And it leaves a weird taste in our mouth that is this how life is going to be? Well, it's so evil out here. Does this mean that evil will finally win? The good news for us is that God says that evil will not win because he himself has the final word. Now the fifth principle we see in verses 9 through 10 as the curtains go down and a new scene shifts and approaches is this, we always answer, and that's number five, to God. Look at what happens in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place. Some feel that likely when it says thrones, it could be a reference to, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then it says, the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days is really, this is the only time this term is used to describe God the Father, and it's a reference to his eternality. It says in Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is the Ancient of Days, and he took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Notice here, God doesn't have a body to put clothes on. It says in John 4, 24, that God is spirit. But the white as snow clothes likely refers to his righteous, his blazing, holy character. His, and the hair of his head was white like wool. Notice that God doesn't have hair with a hair color, but this is an apocalyptic, symbolic language likely referring to his wisdom. His throne was flaming with fire, likely a reference to his power. And its wheels were all ablaze. It's amazing power. In verse 10, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. He was be he's being served by all because there was none to compare with his greatness. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The whole entire world, this 10,000 times 10,000 was just another way of saying everybody, an amazing amount of people stood before this one called the Ancient of Days, the court was seated and the books were open. Do you realize that God is going to hold court on us one day? That the books are going to be open. The books referred to are likely the Lamb's Book of Life that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Moses even knew in Deuteronomy 32 that there was a book of God. It says, do not blot my name from your book. 
The, the scripture says that if you know Christ, that your name has been placed in the book of life. And the ancient of days, the one true God, sets up court and he, all mankind stands before him. And if we know Christ personally, our name is written in that book. Look what happens in verse 11 and 12. Then I continue to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking. He's still yapping his mouth, this antichrist, before the great ancient of days. And it says, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. Now, one of the things this reminds us of is that since we're all going to stand before God, that we need to maintain our great respect for who he is, to never forget that we stand in awe and we will stand before his greatness. God has taken away our guilt. I sat and talked with a man in jail this week and I quoted, and he was a professing believer, a young man who'd done some things that he so regrets, but I quoted Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that says, there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We will stand before this great almighty God with Jesus taking our condemnation, but we must realize we should never lose our respect for him. I heard an interview a few weeks ago about a player for the Charlotte Bobcats, an organization owned by NBA great Michael Jordan. And they asked him, they asked Richardson, they said, what's it like to be around Michael Jordan? They said, do you ever just sort of play a practical joke on him or just kind of joke around with him? And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> Every time I see him, I remember this is the guy that on the posters on the wall, the shoes on my feet. When I was a little kid, I, I, he goes, there's one clown on our team that likes to joke with Michael Jordan. He goes, but I will never. I will never joke around with Michael Jordan. And that's the thing. That's one thing to joke around with a great uh, athlete. But some of us are joking around with the Almighty God. The one that we must realize we're going to stand before. The Ancient of Days, the one who is everlasting, that rules over all things, is the one that we should live in light of. And finally, in verse 13 and 14, these two verses I'm going to unpack more fully as we look at our study next week, but it says this, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was, and was led into his presence. Y'all likely know who this is referring to. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, of men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is the one that will never be destroyed. This is the reference to the Son of God. That is Jesus Christ, who is described here uniquely as the Son of Man. That word, that term, bursting with significance, we'll look at further. But this points out, number six on the outline, a prophecy principle for everyday life, is that this Christ will always be victorious. Our Lord Jesus will always be victorious. My youngest son, had a very brief football career. He played two years on Little League and said he wanted to retire and hang it up after that. But it's funny, he always knew, he always got on the right team. He got on a team with some of the fastest guys in, our, in the Little League, and it's interesting, every game he ever played, they always won. His brothers, who had played a lot more and had lost a lot more, didn't like him saying, yep, we won every single game we ever played. They like to point out that that wasn't real football, you know. <laughs> but can you imagine always being on the winning team if you know Christ, if you know Jesus Christ in a personal way, guess what? You're a member of that team. You're a member of the team that always wins. You're going, why, is, why does he say Christ always wins? I don't always win. 
I fall a lot. My life's falling apart all the time. But do you realize that you're on the winning team that wants to live his life through you, that even in the midst of the mess of life will be there to strengthen you, undergird you with his power, and fill you with hope of what he can and will do in the future. As we consider this mind-blowing passage, it sort of stretches our spiritual imagination to the limit. Are you ready to stand before the ancient of days? As we consider this powerful passage and how it relates to our life, let's take a moment and bow together as we enter into a time of response. Living God today as we've reflected on the cross and the Lord's Supper, and as we've seen this great heavenly vision of the future, we stand in awe of you, the ancient of days. We ask, living God, that you would engineer circumstances right now to draw people to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.